Boaz was dead. That's a fact. No one close to the event questioned it. It wasn't until the skepticism of the 1700s that it was suggested that perhaps Jesus didn't really die on the cross because they didn't doubt that they had seen him uh, three days later. So the idea arose that maybe he just swooned on the cross. And in the, the cool of the limestone cave that uh, he revived a ridiculous notion would require us to believe that professional executioners not only didn't do their job very well but they didn't know when a man was dead would require that the two men who took charge of the body and bathed him and prepared him for burial with a hundred pounds of burial spices didn't notice that he was actually still alive And it would require us to believe that uh, then waking up, being revived in the cave, that this horrifically wounded man unwrapped himself, found his way in the pitch black to the entrance of the tomb, and from inside rolled the stone that weighed several hundred pounds away. And then after the 40 days that he met with his disciples... Where did he go? No, Jesus was dead. Everyone knew it. It was a fact. Everyone could see it. His disciples could see it. His enemies could see it. And they also could see the strange coincidence that the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom when he died. As people saw Jesus die, something unseen was happening. Mark records these words. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard him, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed 
his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Jesus was dead. And somehow, his death on the cross repaired the breach that existed between God and people. Somehow, his death took away our sins. Now, how is that? Well, if you asked any well-educated Christian, they would tell you about the atonement, that we had sin and were driven from God's holy and gracious presence, that we came under his wrath and curse justly, that we were deserving of death. And on the cross, Jesus paid the death debt that we owed to God for our sin. Our sins were accounted to him, his righteousness offered to us by faith. Sounds right? I think it's the best theory of the atonement to date. You say, you say, wait a minute, Pastor, did you say a theory of the atonement? Well, yes, if you look at any good systematic theology, it will have a chapter or a section that is entitled the theory of the atonement. In science... A theory is not a hypothesis, a kind of an educated guess that we test. A theory is a paradigm with explanatory power that makes sense of the facts that we're presented with. And in science, sometimes good theories are displaced by better ones. Newton's gravitational theory was displaced by Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh, even though Einstein, or I'm sorry, Newton's math still works pretty well. Kids still learn it in school. And the theory of the atonement that I just recounted in short order to you uh, did not exist until the 12th century, until a man by the name of Anselm wrote a little book entitled Credeus Homo, Why the God-Man. And after he wrote it, most Christians, at least in the West, said, of course, how could we have missed it? 
But before that time, there were a variety of theories on how Christ's death saved us. One of the earliest, still favored by the Eastern Church, is the recapitulation theory set forth by Irenaeus in the 2nd century. That Christ came as the new Adam to succeed where the first Adam had failed. And having succeeded, then his death was a gateway to the resurrection which brought the perfection which Adam had failed to attain. Another very common theory was the ransom theory that was set forth by Origen of Alexandria in the early 3rd century. By listening to Satan and rebelling against God, Satan had become the God of this world. That's what Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4.4, to which people were subjected and were enslaved. Christ came and by his death paid the ransom price to Satan to redeem back our lives. Little did Satan know that he wouldn't stay dead. If that sounds familiar to you and you are a reader of C.S. Lewis, it's because that theme shows up in the Chronicles of Narnia with the stone table. If you remember the story, the life of a traitor belongs to the white witch. And she has the right to kill the traitor on the stone table. And Aslan offers himself to the white witch in place of the traitor Edmund and she accepts the ransom little knowing that he's not going to stay dead. In the 1930s Gustav Aulon uh, set forth the thesis that most of the early church fathers believed in the Christus Victor theory, Christ the victor, that Christ's death on the cross was man's unjust judgment. God's raising him from the dead was God's reversal of that unjust sentence and a proclamation of his victory over the powers of the world. And I think it's certainly possible to see the elements of all of those things in the death of Christ, If I had to choose one, I would go with Anselm. That Christ died as a substitutionary atonement for our sin to satisfy the just wrath of God. But what does that mean? Does that mean that people before Anselm were not saved? Because they didn't know that? Well, it might. If we were saved on the basis of our understanding of the atonement or by what we think about it. It would if we were saved by believing in a certain theory of the atonement, but our theories are not the foundation of what saves us. We confess in the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And the foundational statement that defines the boundaries of the Christian faith offers to us no theory of the atonement. It simply recounts the facts that Jesus was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried. And it reminds us that we are not saved by belief in a theory, but by trusting in the Son of God who died for us. Now, some theories of the atonement, I think, are better than others. And it's good for us to reflect on what Christ has done and to meditate on what it means and how that saves us. I suspect, however, 
that our best theology, our best theories of the atonement, only scratch the surface of what the death of Christ has done for us and what it means for us. They tell me that within 20 years, we're all going to own electric vehicles. I don't understand how electric vehicles work. I, I understand how internal combustion engines work, or at least how old ones did. I don't know if I understand the magic of the new ones as well. But I don't understand how electric vehicles work. I just don't get them. But I'm pretty sure I could drive a Tesla. And I'm pretty sure you could drive a Tesla, too. You don't need to know how it works for it to get you where you're going. You don't need to know how the death of Christ brings you to God in order for him to be able to do so. You just need to trust in Jesus who was crucified, died, and was buried. It's not our thoughts about Christ's death that save us. It's not even our faith in Christ's death that is the foundation of our salvation. But it is the facts of what Jesus has actually done in time and space, in his death, in his burial, that is the foundation of our salvation. You could have the best, most profound, most accurate, most uh, accredited orthodox theory of the atonement, and if Jesus didn't really die, wasn't really crucified, wasn't really buried, if those things were not facts, you would not be saved, could not be saved. Jesus was dead. That's a fact. And in that fact, we find reconciliation to God.